If you have your Bibles, let's take a look at the passage in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, picking up where uh, Tom Stegall left off. In uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Let's continue reading down through the end of this section. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say then to me, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you who are to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endure with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy whom he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As Tom Stegall stated in his last, last session, uh, it's unfortunate that this section, great section on God's sovereignty, has been taken to refer to individual election, and many of these Calvinists that teach this also deny a future for the nation of Israel. And they are very inconsistent in their approach. At the end of the book of Romans, Romans 8, um, Paul says, Nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But when it comes to Israel, they say that God has been separated from Israel because of their failure. And so they are very inconsistent, and what they tend to do in this section is they deny a future for Israel, they deny national election, and they focus, therefore, on individual election. But I think this passage speaks of a future for Israel. I think this prayer prepares the way for Romans chapter 11. So it's very important when we study this passage on God's sovereignty, we need to see it in his sovereign history uh, for the Jews and Gentiles. And I think we need to see that he's speaking, by the way, and I think a key to this whole section comes at that last verse that I read in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 24 says, Even us, plural, whom he called, not of the Jew only, but also the Gentile. So see, he's speaking of corporate groups. Corporate groups, not simply on individual election in this section. Now, let's begin with the verse in Romans 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And uh, Paul's answer in the Greek is certainly not. Certainly not. Now, uh, John Whitmer in the Bible Knowledge Commentary states this. Is God unrighteous in choosing Isaac over Ishmael? Now, he's referring to what he previously stated in uh, verses 12 and 13 of Romans 9. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. 
So in that choice of Jacob over Esau, is God unjust? Is God unjust in doing so? Is that really fair? I think that would be the summary statement of verse 14. Or we could say, this is not fair. (laughs) This is not fair that God favored one individual for privilege over another. And John Whitmer says, is God unjust in choosing Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau? The Greek negative particle may, with a question, implies a negative response. No, that's not unfair. That's not unfair. God has the right to do so. And therefore, Jacob was chosen to be in the line of the promised seed. It is a matter of mercy. So we're not here talking about how to go to heaven or the individuals who are chosen to go to heaven or chosen to go to hell. Here it's about privilege. And therefore, Jacob was chosen to be in the line of the promised seed. As a matter of fact, Paul in Romans chapter 9 indicates that one of the 11 privileges or other nine privileges of Israel mentioned in Romans, he speaks of in Romans chapter 9 verse 5, of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came. So the privilege of birthing the Messiah one of those privileges, I think, that is alluded to in that, those verses. Now, when addressing this section on election, we must address the larger context in Romans 9 through 11. So what is the broad picture in this section here? In Hal Lindsley's book, The Road to Holocaust, he outlines Romans 9 through 11 as thus. Romans 9, Israel is elect, in the past is elected. So Israel was elected in the past. And again, this is referring to national election, not individual election. Romans 10 deals with Israel's current condition. Israel's current condition, because of rejecting the gospel, because of their unbelief, they are rejected. They are rejected. By and large, the Jews have rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. But in the future, though, Israel will be accepted. Israel will be accepted. There is a future for Israel in Romans chapter 9, verse 25 and following. All Israel will be saved. So there is a national future, an individual future for the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This section demonstrates that Israel has a future because in spite of her failure in the present, God will continue to preserve her and his unconditional promises to her will be fulfilled in the future, in Romans 9, 11, verse 2, 5, and 28 through 32. Therefore, Calvinists who deny Israel's future tend to only focus on individual election in this section and miss the point and purpose of Israel's past election. What's the whole point of Israel being elected? Israel's election uh, prepares for the way of Israel's acceptance or future. Israel will have a future because they were elected in the past. So these Calvinists will argue for this believer security. They love to speak about the believer security in Romans chapter 8, but they deny that to national Israel. So at the end of the book of Romans, we see that nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, except for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this chart up here, I think, shows that at the end of the book of Rome, or Romans 8, the end of Romans 8, I think there are key words that are repeated for Israel. So in this left column, we have what is called the golden chain. Calvinists typically love this section, Romans 8. 
They had the fivefold golden chain, you know, we're foreknown, we're called, we're predestined, we're justified and glorified. Those he justified, those he also glorified. And they apply this to individuals and speak of individuals' election to heaven. We're predestined to go to heaven. And then also we're eternally loved by God. But they fail to use the same terminology when applied to Israel. And I find it interesting that some of these very same terms, even the Greek terms, are used to describe Israel's future. Uh, for instance, we speak of the foreknowledge of God in Romans chapter 8. Let's take a look at Romans 8, verse 29. Romans eight twenty-nine: For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So it speaks of God knowing in advance believers, and they are foreknown of God. But notice in Romans chapter 11, he uses that exact same Greek word. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. So he makes an argument for Israel's future based on his foreknowledge. So if you argue for individual believers' future, uh, their security based on foreknowledge, and deny that for Israel, that is inconsistent. And we can also talk about uh, the believer's calling in Romans 8.30 and, and, and Israel's calling in uh, Romans chapter 11. We won't look at all these passages, but Romans 11, 11 and 24. It, uh, predestination, Romans 8.30, but Israel is called elect. And as Tom pointed out, this is national election. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 11, verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So because of God's unconditional promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I think that's what he's referring to, the Abrahamic covenant promises, Israel has a future. They are beloved. And therefore, what about the justification? justification? We know that uh, Israel fail, failed in pursuing righteousness. They tried to pursue righteousness, and Paul argues this in Romans chapter uh, 11, by the works of the law. They did not come to Christ by faith, and therefore they, as individuals, were not declared righteous or justified. But one day, all Israel will be saved, in Romans chapter 11, verse 26. They will look unto faith unto their Messiah, as in the book of Zechariah, and believe as a nation. Also glorification, those who justified them, he also glorified, Romans 8.30. And Paul mentions both Jews and Gentiles that are prepared for glory in Romans 9.23 and 24. And then this last section, Romans 8, as Romans 8 ends, uh, let's take a look at Romans 8.35 through 39. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he mentions things that believers typically look at that indicate, may to, maybe indicate to them that God has stopped loving me. I'm going through trials. I'm going through trouble. This is happening in my life. And therefore, those things demonstrate that God has stopped loving me. And that's not the case. Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yea, in all these things we are hyper-conquerors. Paul had to almost invent a word here for super-overcomers. <laughs> they are hyper-conquerors, more than conquerors, through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Think about that phrase. And Paul didn't, didn't want to include everything that the believer may face. He said, well, things to come, that covers it all. <laughs> Nothing in the future will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But think about things to come in regard to Israel. I would like you to think some of these terms, like Israel's persecution and related to Israel still has a future. Think about the Holocaust and the trials that the nation of Israel have gone through. But they still have a future because God loves them. So nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nor height, verse 39, nor depth, things above, things below, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are eternally loved, but that Israel is also eternally loved by God. We'll read Romans chapter 11, verse 28 once again. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, national election, they are beloved. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So they are loved by God, and therefore they have a future. Now let's talk about national election, because I think that's what he's speaking of here in this section, Israel's national election. And uh, national election, too often confused with individual election, note the apostles' warning to the nation of Israel on this point, as recorded in Romans 9, 4 through 13, anticipates no more than the ultimate blessing of Israel as a nation and their national preservation unto that end. So that's what national election guarantees, Israel's preservation as a nation and their future blessing. But this national election does not extend to every Israelite. That it does not, the apostle proves in Romans 9, 1 through 24. This is a quote from Lewis Perry Chafer, Systematic Theology. National election guarantees neither the eternal nor the physical salvation of every individual within the nation. So we're not talking about the guarantee of individual salvation, as Arnold Frutenbaum states here, what national election does guarantee is that God's purposes in choosing the nation will be accomplished and that the elect nation will always survive as a distinct entity. It guarantees the physical salvation of the nation and, in the case of Israel, even a national salvation. The national election of Israel is the basis of God's status as the chosen people. And this is from Arnold Frutenbaum. Now, in Romans 9, uh, 14 to 24, he deals with vessels of wrath and mercy and ends up applying this to groups. As I mentioned before, that verse 24 is key to this section, even us, plural. He applies this to groups of individuals, Jews and Gentiles. Now, uh, Gordon Olson's book, Getting the Gospel Right, he summarizes this section in Romans 9, 14 through 29. In verses 14 through 29, we have four examples of God's sovereign justice and his dealing with the nation of Israel. First of all, number one, God's gracious and compassionate favor upon the nation Israel and especially favoring their leader Moses. In Romans 9, 14 through 16, Exodus 33, 19, and Exodus 32, 10 through 14. 
Secondly, God's sovereign purpose to bring Israel out of Egypt and to make a signal demonstration of his judgment upon corrupt, idolatrous religion in the process. Romans 9, 17 through 18. That's the section where, he's, where he speaks of the hardening of Pharaoh. We're going to address the hardening of Pharaoh. But it was not simply the hardening so that he wouldn't believe the gospel. That wasn't the issue at all. It was to deliver the nation of Israel out of Egypt and show his power. And therefore, another uh, a third thing that uh, Calvinists have typically uh, misapplied, God has a sovereign right as a potter to use Israel for two millennia and then set them aside in favor of the church. So again, I think he's not referring to individuals there. He's referring even that passage, when you look at the original context in Jeremiah, he speaks of the nation of Israel in, in the hand of the potter. Uh, in Romans 9, 19-24. We'll address that here in a minute. And then Gordon Olson states, number four, those who are not God's people can become the people of God. In Romans 9, 25-29. Now, in verse 15, he says, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. This is the address and answer to the question of God's unfairness. God's unfairness. God has a prerogative as God to dispense mercy on whomever he will. Sometimes, even as individuals, we think we have a right, we're entitled to the mercy of God. Are we entitled to God's mercy? Is it something that comes upon us because we're good or we perform? Obviously not. And so even in a national sense, mercy is not something that Israel's entitled to. Mercy is not something that the Gentiles are entitled to. Uh, God is the one who dispenses mercy. Now, mercy is that aspect of his goodness that causes God to show pity and compassion. Mercy can also include the withholding of deserved punishment. I think the common definition, the distinction between grace and mercy, grace is undeserved favor, and mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. <laughs> we deserve hell. We deserve a judgment. But uh, God's mercy can be shown in his favor and goodness upon any individual. And that is up to the prerogative of a sovereign God. Now, this passage is taken out of Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. Paul quoted Exodus 33, 19 to show that God's mercy and compassion are extended according to God's will and not man's will. All of us deserve condemnation, not mercy. The reference in Exodus 33 deals with Israel's idolatry while Moses was on the mount receiving the law. The whole nation deserved to be destroyed, yet God killed only 3,000 people, not because they were more wicked or less godly, but purely because of grace and mercy, as Warren Wiersbe stated. Now, the word uh, thelo means to resolve. God does not dispense his mercy because of man's resolve, something man does or tries to do. Or, nor for man striving or giving effort. The word treko, by the way, the word run, we think of the word going on a trek, or a journey, the English word from this Greek word. The idea is to dispense effort, to try to do, to give effort, to pursue something. This same Greek word, by the way, is used of Israel in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, 
What shall we say then that the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained a righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, hath not obtained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. They tried to achieve righteousness by keeping the law. So God does not dispense mercy because of man's effort, man's striving. And then it's God as the individual ultimately shows mercy, whether in a national setting for certain, certain uh, privileges or for individuals, God is the one who gives mercy. And let's take a look at Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. And then we'll look at Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Titus 3, 5. And this is a great salvation passage, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. God saved us by his mercy. It wasn't something that man deserved or can earn or, or uh, do as far as except uh, earning God's favor. It was because God had divine compassion upon us. And that compassion, by the way, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross so that we can have eternal life through faith in him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. See, verse 5 indicates that we did not deserve God's mercy. Even while we were separated from a holy God, this is called spiritual death, he gave us spiritual life. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So even in individual salvation, God's mercy is bestowed upon undeserving sinners, not because of their merit, not because they resolve. And by the way, even if we, if we apply this to individual salvation, not of him who wills, I think it, it refutes the lordship salvation approach. I have to resolve and commit my life to Christ in order to be saved. Well, it's not through your resolutions. It's not through your reformation. It's not through your promises and it's not from, your turn, you, if not from you turning from your sins that you're saved. It's not by your resolve or your effort or your striving. It's purely by God's mercy and by his grace that we are saved. Now, I think we need to connect that term mercy with the end of Romans chapter 11. So let's take a look at Romans chapter 11, verse 28 through 32. Here he's applying mercy in how God historically is dealing with Jew and Gentile. So how is God historically dealing with Jews and Gentiles? And by the way, this parallels also the olive tree illustration earlier. Uh, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Notice God's calling. He called the nation of Israel. It's irrevocable. He will fulfill his promises with Israel. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now obtain mercy through their disobedience, even so these, he's contrasting Jew and Gentile historically, even these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, 
notice corporate groups, they may also obtain mercy. For God had committed them all, Jew and Gentile, to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Notice mercy is upon all. He states the same thing, by the way, in Romans 11.24. Mercy was bestowed historically upon Jew and Gentile, on both. Uh, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. It's all in the wisdom and sovereign plan of God, how he deals with the Jews and Gentiles. So God's mercy was bestowed upon Israel in the past. We know that they were adopted uh, as a nation, and I think that term terminology speaks of national election. They were adopted, and Paul starts out by mentioning that privilege. They were adopted. They were elected as God's chosen people. And currently, though, Israel's rejection results in their hardening. We'll see Pharaoh's hardening, by the way. So connect Pharaoh's hardening with Israel's future hardening. God can at time choose to harden the nation of Israel while he's fulfilling his plan with the Gentiles. And so I think he's referring to what he's doing historically with those people groups. Israel's rejection of the Messiah results in their hardening in Romans 11.30 and Romans 11.25. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. They're hardened as a whole. Not every individual because he says it's in part. There are individual Jews who can still come to faith in Christ. We mentioned Arnold Frutenbaum, Messianic Jew. Uh, so it's not total, but there is a judgment upon the nation of Israel. There's judgment upon descend the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they rejected their Messiah historically. And they're harder to win to Christ because of that judgment. So they first chose to reject the gospel and crucify their Savior, and then the hardening comes afterwards. So we have in, in how God deals mercy, God, but what did that, by the way, Israel's rejection, pave the way for? That paved the way for God's mercy to the Gentiles. Think about that. I think uh, we're all here because of that. Us Gentiles are recipients of God's mercy because of Israel's hardening. It's amazing, God took something that was negative and turned around to a positive. And therefore, God is now currently, as an entity, a people group, bestowing mercy on Gentiles. Because of what? Israel's hardening. So now we are in favored status before God, as far as a people group, in Romans 11.30. And then four, we have what is anticipated, I think, Gentile hardening. When the Gentiles become arrogant because of privileges, <laughs> uh, they will be broken off of that olive tree, and Israel will be grafted back into their own tree. In Romans chapter 11, verse 31, even so these have been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, Gentiles, they may also obtain mercy. And that, ended, ended, uh, that uh, implies certainly Israel's future restoration. And then fifthly, Israel's future mercy because of Gentile hardening, resulting in Israel's future restoration. So we see how historically God has bestowed mercy on individual groups, Jews and Gentiles. And I think that's why we need to connect this section here with Romans chapter 11, verses 28 through 32. Now, uh, 
Samuel Fisk, in his book, Election and Predestination, quotes Dr. Griffith Thomas. And uh, he would have been one of the professors at Dallas Seminary in 1924 uh, when Dallas Seminary was founded, but he passed away, and therefore Chafer uh, became, uh, I think, teacher of systematic theology. But uh, Dr. Griffith Thomas pointed to God's mercy as a subject and its extension to the Gentiles in comparison with its previous relation to Israel as the theme of this section. God's mercy, verse 16, is not merely a response to human resolve, him that willeth, or to human effort, him that runneth. But his own, his own divine will is the one and only source of his mercy. All men are sinners, and as God pardoned Israel where, when they were rebels, why may he not pardon the Gentiles also? So he sees it in a historical sense as well. God has a future for Israel not because of their goodness, but because of God's mercy. Now let's talk about Pharaoh here. Uh, in verse 17 he says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raise you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Now again, Calvinists, they, they look at this passage and indicate that Pharaoh was obviously predestined to be hardened, and therefore he was predestined to go to hell. And that is completely foreign from this context and from the passage which he quotes from in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, raise you up is not God raised up Pharaoh from birth to, to reject the truth. The idea is God raised him up as a leader of a nation, as a nation. And the word raised you up does not mean that God raised him up from birth for this purpose. This refers to his elevation to the highest throne on earth. God raised up Pharaoh to the highest throne on earth so that God can deliver a nation, his chosen people out of Egypt. So God used the rejection of truth by Pharaoh to accomplish a purpose for Israel. And it tells us what the purpose of the raising up, by the way. And I think, by the way, and not in uh, these notes, I, I uh, added additional notes. There are a couple passages in the Septuagint, the word raised up, there, one refers to Cyrus in the Old Testament. Cyrus was raised up to deliver the nation and bring them back from uh, captivity, the Babylonian captivity. So that term in the Septuagint is used of God raising up individual leaders to accomplish a purpose, not raising up from birth. So there's a couple passages in the Old Testament that indicate he's not talking about being raised up from birth, as Calvinists teach. Uh, the purpose of God raising up Pharaoh was to show his power, to show his power. God used Pharaoh's stubborn, proud heart to fully judge all the gods of Egypt. The ten plagues was a polemic against uh, Egyptian gods in the process of delivering his people from that pagan land. Frutenbaum states this, God raised up Pharaoh at this specific point in history and put him on the throne to serve as an example of what divine justice is all about. God had both an immediate purpose and a distant purpose. The immediate purpose was that I might show in you my power the distant purpose was that my name may be published abroad in all the earth. Now, think about uh, God's name being promoted in all the earth 
with that deliverance from Egypt. The deliverance of the children of Egypt uh, in the Old Testament is probably the bedrock historical event that demonstrates uh, God's purpose and God's uh, faithfulness to the nation of Israel. And uh, the name of the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was spread to pagan Gentile nations through that deliverance. Uh, For instance, we have Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, heard about that deliverance in Exodus 18, verses 10 and 11. We also have other passages such as Exodus 10, 1 and 2, in Exodus 14, 17 through 18. Rahab, think about a Gentile, Rahab, heard about what God did in delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt. And a Gentile was saved because of believing the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rahab and the residents of Jericho heard about God's great deliverance. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, let's take a look back at that passage. Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Now, you remember the spies, she said to these men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has befallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard these things, our heart melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Think about that. So what God did historically, the word got around. (laughs) The word got around to Rahab. He showed his name throughout all the earth. The Philistines even heard about this 300 years later. And that's mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 8. That's during Saul's time. Now, Norm Geiser in his book, Chosen but Free, states this, the Lord's purpose being that God might prove to Israel that he was the Lord who delivered them. To show Pharaoh that he was the only God, Exodus 9, 14, and to show the Egyptians that he was the Lord, Exodus 7, 5, 14, 4, and 18 and that his name might be declared throughout the whole earth, Exodus 9, 16. These purposes were realized by Israel, Pharaoh, and the Egyptians, and throughout all the earth. And that's why God raised up Pharaoh. God, in fact, is presently having mercy on both Jew and Gentile who believe. But he has hardened unbelieving Israel. Both are sovereign prerogatives that God exercises as he wills. The hardening for the deliverance of Israel was not to determine whether or not Pharaoh would go to heaven. How can you read that into that passage? God hardening Pharaoh so that he would go to heaven. That's not the context. Now, he will have mercy on whom he wills. Um, Rene Lopez says this, Being chosen to receive the blessing does not depend on man's conduct but solely on God who shows mercy. Now, the hardening of Pharaoh, the word uh, scleruno means to cause to be unyielding and resisting information. That's very important. 
The hardening is resisting truth. Pharaoh resisted the truth. He had the signs. God clearly gave the signs. Uh, he gave Moses the rod, and a rod turned into a snake, and all the various plagues. Those were signs to show who he is, the powerful God above all the Egyptian gods. That was information. That was information that Pharaoh rejected. Pharaoh rejected. So the hardening means that Pharaoh rejected information given. So it's not this kind of uh, generic, uh, you know, God giving you a rebellious heart out of the blue. It was specifically, he rejected the information that was given him. And therefore, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. As God hardened Pharaoh, a Gentile, to deliver Israel, God in the future will harden Gentiles to save Israel. So he'll use this concept later in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Now, I like this uh, chart from uh, Geisler's book, Chosen But Free. In contrasting, God does not harden hearts versus God does harden hearts. God does not harden hearts initially. So it wasn't God's initial hardening of Pharaoh's heart that caused him to do X, Y, and Z. God did harden his heart after he rejected information. And then, subsequently, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not do it directly. He did not harden Pharaoh's heart directly. He did it indirectly. He did not harden Pharaoh's heart against free choice. He hardened it through free choice. Pharaoh had the opportunity to let my people go. He could have done so at any point in time. God, does not harden, God did not harden Pharaoh's heart as to their cause, but as to their effect. And I think that's a very important contrast the hardening wasn't against his will. It wasn't irresistible grace. Calvinists love to use this as an example of irresistible. You can't just, it, it's irresistible. It's forced upon you. There's nothing you could do. And that's not true. Now, we see, I think, nine times uh, in the text where Pharaoh hardened his heart, and nine times, accordingly, when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Almost an equal distribution of God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart. So we have the text that God hardened, uh, Pharaoh hardened his own heart in Exodus 3, 19, Exodus 7, 13, and 14, and 22, 8, 15, and 19, 32, 9, 7, and 34, and 35. He repeatedly hardened his heart. It's very interesting. It's not at one time hardening. It's interesting. After certain plagues, he hardened his heart again. And then he hardened it again in the future. So it's not a one time hardening. Think about it. So Calvinists, they would have to go with a one-time hardening that had long-term results. But this is a repeated hardening. And then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, and then all these passages in Exodus 4 and so forth. Now, this chart, by the way, shows God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart, or his, his own heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and then God hardened his heart. We begin by the Calvinists love to begin at Exodus 4.21. They want to begin there, but let's go back to Exodus 3.19. Exodus 3.19. God foretold uh, Moses of, Israel, of uh, Pharaoh's uh, rejection of truth. Uh, in Exodus chapter 3, let's take a look at verse 19 here. 
But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. Notice, he will not let you go. <laughs> so it begins by Pharaoh's resolve not to let the people go. And uh, therefore, he hardened his own heart initially. And then God hardened his heart. Now, what is a pra I think of a practical illustration of this. Uh, Pharaoh hardening his own heart and God hardening his heart. Pharaoh chose to reject truth and he was going against the truth. So he was headed this way. And what did God do? God gave him a shove in that direction. <laughs> and that's hardening. God, hard God said, okay, you're going to go this way. I'm going to give you an additional shove. I'm going to reinforce your negativity against truth. And that's the hardening of Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh's heart has nothing to do with his believing the gospel or his eternal destiny. Very important. It has nothing to do with salvation. Nothing at all. His hardening deals with whether he will not let the children whether he will let the children go or not let them go. That was the issue. That was the basis for hardening. It, there's nothing in there about believing the gospel at all. Pharaoh hardened his own heart before God hardened his heart. And then, therefore, the hardening also is a rejection of the light that he had, the signs. He had the signs that he rejected. He rejected that light, that information. And therefore, God hardened, hardened him. Now, Jeremiah 5.3 shows individual responsibility in regard to God's hardening. Let's take a look at Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 5. Verse 3, O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them. Here's God's judgment upon his own people. You have judged them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. So this is an example here of how God works with people who have hardened hearts. They reject the truth, and God allows them to go their way. And therefore, there's individual responsibility in regard to hardening. You're not irresistibly hardened. No one is. Um, Joshua 11, 19 and 20, God hardened the inhabitants of the land of Israel in the days of Joshua so that they would not make a peace treaty with them and be destroyed. But the exception to that rule to show that this does not include all cases is Rahab. Rahab was a believer. She was a Gentile, part of the, that same group of individuals. Dave Hunt states this, if Pharaoh had been totally depraved, why would God have to harden his heart? <laughs> True. Nor does it say that when Pharaoh at least let Israel go, God caused him to do so with irresistible grace. He was simply terrified and on that basis submitted to Yahweh's will, but still without true repentance. The hardening was always in reference to letting Israel go, as Geiser states, not to believing or obeying what is said in reference to salvation. Now, I think Romans chapter 1 is a great example of this. In Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks of general revelation. 
God created this universe as a witness to his power. And this is certainly a truth that is being suppressed. God as creator. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth. They, the idea is they hold it down. They know it. They have a God consciousness, but they try to put it out of their mind. I don't want God in my thinking. I want to live like I want to live. I don't want to, be, I don't want to submit to a creator God, so I'm going to suppress this truth in unrighteousness. And notice here, um, this revelation clearly is available and seen by all. Because that what, which may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. And that revelation is ongoing. We could say this whole passage, it, I think it speaks well of our day, by the way. And I think application can be made to the gender confusion that we have today. God created men and women. And therefore, a rejection of that truth is a rejection of God as creator. It's a suppression of the truth of God as creator. So we have this example in Romans 1.18. God clearly reveals his truth in creation. Romans 1, 19 through 21. It's clearly seen, God's power. Number two, what did individuals do? They suppressed the truth as, of God as creator, Romans 1.18. God then gives them a shove in the direction they want to go. <laughs> Notice in Romans 1.24. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness. I think that's similar to the idea of hardening. God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Romans chapter 1, verse 26. God gave them up to vile passions. And then Romans 1, 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. See? They hardened their heart against God as creator, and God, as a judgment, gave them over to believe stupidity <laughs> or evolution or whatever form that takes away from the knowledge of whatever form of religion that takes away from the knowledge of God as creator. They rejected truth, and God let them go in that direction. So I think this is a great example of the, the illustration of how God hardens. He doesn't do so apart from rejection of revelation or truth. Now, in verse 19, we have the words of an objector. So, if God manifested mercy on one group of individuals versus the other, then you might say God's will is irresistible. <laughs> God's will is irresistible, and there's nothing I could do. Just submit to that irresistible will of God. And so realize that this is not the words of Paul here, in a sense he wrote this, but this is the words of an objector. And so in essence the objector is stating this, if God has already decided to set Israel aside in favor of the church, how can Israel be blamed? How can you blame Israel? How can Jews resist the will of a sovereign guard in this regard? Well, granting all that you've been saying that God's decrees are irresistible, and my, I myself am but an automaton, moved about at his own will, absolutely without responsibility, why does he find fault? What ground can there be for judgment of a creature who can never run, but as God himself directs? 
To resist his will is impossible. Where then does moral responsibility come in? As Ironside stated. Now, um, the word for fault here, we have the Greek word to blame. You know, uh, the idea of why does God blame me for my rebellion if he hardened my heart irresistibly? If you want to read it in that sense. Why blame me? <laughs> Who has resisted his will? And by the way, the word for will here is a stronger Greek word. It's a word that's seldom used in the Greek. It's a stronger word for will. Uh, we have the idea of his absolute divine counsel here. Here instead of uh, William uh, Chamberlain says this in his exegetical grammar of the Greek New Testament. Here instead of boule, we find the word bolema which with the resulting ending ma may indicate a more formal crystallized plan or counsel. Perhaps it comes closest to the idea of a decree, which seems to be the way it is used in 1 Clement. Note that Paul's only use of the word boluma is from the lips of the more fatalistic objectors. So it's a deliberate word chosen in the idea of a fatalistic individual. No one has resisted the irresistible will of God. We're all destined to be where we are. And uh, therefore, the idea of Dr. Walbert says, even if you apply this to individual salvation, I think the idea here is, is that's not the case, but Dr. Walbert says this, efficacious grace never operates in a heart that is still rebellious. No one is ever saved against his own will. Understand that. Now, we do acknowledge that there is a convicting work of the Holy Spirit. No one can come to faith in Christ apart from the Spirit convicting their need of Christ. And John 16 is very clear on that. Jesus Christ will come and he sends the Holy Spirit who will convince men of their unbelief in the gospel. So we still need that operation because of our uh, uh, depraved nature, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Also, the power of the gospel and the salvation. The gospel itself has power, as Paul stated in Romans 1, 16, to save individuals. But God still gives you the opportunity with the information. Do I accept the gospel or do I reject it? Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He, was, he rose from the dead. He offers eternal life as a gift to anyone who believes. The choice is yours. You could accept that by faith. You can rest in that. You can have peace by believing that, or you can say, that's a bunch of nonsense. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to try to run. I'm going to try to resolve to obtain God's merit or favor to receive his mercy. God does not force you to believe. God does not force you to believe. And therefore, this uh, objection from this uh, fatalist is a faulty objection. God does not force free creatures to love him. And we all have always stated that uh, forced love is rape. And so God does not force free creatures to love him. The, re the reply here is, but indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? <laughs> That's interesting that the response here is, you know, you can't say that, you know, God has done this irresistibly. You, you, God does what he wants to do. He is sovereign. Now, God has power over the clay, but yet the clay is still accountable to God. Uh, 
The clay is still accountable to God. Now, Norm Geisler says this, Let us note that Jeremiah saw the vessel formed on the wheel. And let's read the following verse here in Romans 9.21. Let's go back to our text here. So he says here, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Once again, Calvinists love to use this passage saying that we're just passive clay in God's hands, that uh, there's nothing you could do about salvation. You can't even believe. They go so far to say that you know, you're not the one who believes in one sense, that God has to give you the faith. And actually they teach that you're born again first, then you believe. How ridiculous is that? I'm saved first and I believe. <laughs> so God forces his love upon you. Um, and therefore you have no right to reply to God who is the divine potter. As Tom Stegall indicates, this is probably James White's view in the potter's freedom. Um, but Geister says this, Let us note that Jeremiah saw the vessel formed on the wheel being marred, but then, then being remade by the potter since the clay was soft. Its form had not yet been fixed by firing in the kiln. Think about it, that's how you harden clay. But there's no hardening in that sense. The clay is still pliable. It's still pliable. The point that, that God explains to Jeremiah is that the nation Israel is clay in God's hands. And the nation's future is contingent upon their response to his word. Jeremiah 18. Let's go back to the text here in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 8 and 11. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant that I speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to build it and to plan it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. So this idea earlier in chapter 18, he talks about the, the, the nation of Israel as in the hand of the potter. He gives them the opportunity to turn from their evil. So it's not the clay passively not doing anything, I can't do anything, I'm made this way and so I'm going to be either rebellious or not. I'm in the hand of the potter, I can't do anything. You look clearly, they could, the nation could have. He says, I'm going to turn from what I plan to do if the nation turns from its evil. Um, so if we go back to the original text, we see it's not an irresistible hardening uh, that he is teaching here. Uh, Geiser says this, this passage is not teaching deterministic election. In Jeremiah 18, the basic lump of clay will either be built up or torn down depending on Israel's moral response to God. Very clear in Jeremiah 18, verse 8. Calvinists ignore the fact that issues Paul deal, is dealing with and the message of God throughout Jeremiah both relate to the nation Israel corporately. So not only is he dealing with uh, the idea the nation could turn to God once again, but he's speaking of the nation as a whole. He's speaking corporately in corporate terms. Paul later uses the cause of Israel being set aside as their unbelief. Let's look at this in Romans 9, verse 30 through 33. 
What shall we say then that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, had not obtained the law of righteousness. Why? Here's the reason. Why? Because they were irresistibly hardening, hardened. Why? No, because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And that stumbling stone is the Messiah. They rejected their Messiah. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 16 through 21. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Now, what is obeying the gospel? That is not salvation by works. Uh, the gospel is believing in the finished work of Christ. And they did not believe, and so that is disobedience. That is disobedience. So not believing is disobedience. As a matter of fact, he explains what not obeying the gospel is. He says, quoting from Isaiah 50 through 1, Lord, who hath believed our report? By the way, he's quoting from a passage speaking of Messiah's death and resurrection. Isaiah chapter 53. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Notice verse 21, but to Israel he says, All day long I've stretched out my hand, does that not seem like God wanting the nation to turn to him? I'm stretching out my hand. Just take it. Just believe. To a disobedient and contrary people. But they are in rebellion against me. So we see this is not irresistible grace. We see that Israel chose to reject the Lord. And they cannot blame God. They cannot blame God. The clay is not in the kiln. It is still soft and pliable. It's not irresistibly hardened. The Apostle Paul simply has in view privileges here on earth. As Ironside stated. Now, God is able to make one vessel for honor and one vessel for dishonor. Uh, Geiser states this, Jeremiah saw the vessel being formed on the wheel, being marred, but then being remade by the potter, since the clay was soft. Its form had not yet been fixed, as we, we observed uh, several times. The point that God explains to Jeremiah is that the nation Israel is clay in God's hands, and the nation's future is contingent upon their response to his word. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring upon it. So it's not apart from Israel desiring to turn to the Lord. God does have the sovereign right as potter to use Israel for two millennia and then set them aside in favor of the church. God has that right. Now, an example practically of individuals here, look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And verse 20 and 21, 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will become a vessel for honor. So here's a switch. You can become a vessel of dishonor and switch over to what? A vessel of honor sanctified, set apart, and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. 
So there's clearly an example individually of a switching from a vessel of dishonor to a vessel of honor. So this is not eternal, irresistible grace. You can switch from being a dishonorable vessel to an honorable vessel. Now, uh, Geiser goes on to state this. Never it is a reference to anyone's salvation. Israel is said to be the clay. The clay is formed, not created. Very important. The clay is formed, not created. There was no clay before the foundation of the world. Neither is anyone said to be fitted or prepared before the foundation of the world. Does not the potter have power over the clay? from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. The potter has the right to bless and to judge. God has the moral authority over his creation. I think that's the big point. God has the absolute authority over his creation. Now, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16. Isaiah 29, verse 16. Surely have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? Shall the thing made say to him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? We are subject to the divine potter. He ultimately has the ultimate authority over our life. And therefore, we need to submit to his will. So a vessel of wrath is a vessel that receives wrath. A vessel of mercy is a vessel who receives mercy. A vessel of honor is one that gives honor. A vessel of dishonor is one that does not bring honor to God. The unrepentant element of Israel becomes a vessel for dishonor, and the repentant group becomes a vessel for honor. Both dishonorable vessels and honorable vessels accomplish God's purposes. Ultimately, this refers to God's purposes with the Jew and Gentiles historically. So I think he's looking here historically what God does with Jews and Gentiles versus, versus individually, especially as we saw that passage in Romans 11, 30 through 33. Um, what if God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Once again, we need to jump forward two verses and see that he's referring this to people groups, Jews and Gentiles, not individuals, even on us, us plural. Now, Vine in his expository dictionary says of the word destruction. <clears throat> Calvinists love to look at this and say, well, these vessels are fitted for destruction. They're created for that very purpose. Therefore, there's nothing they could do. Uh, but the word here, fitted, is in the middle voice. And the idea is that they fit themselves for destruction. The idea. They have accountability. They have responsibility. These vessels are, fit, are fitted themselves for destruction because of their rejection of the truth. His forbearance signified that he was giving them opportunity for repentance or to acknowledge their faith. Uh, Romans 2, 4, the goodness of God, I like that passage, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So they had opportunity, they had opportunity, these vessels, but they rejected that opportunity to believe. Now, we get to the final uh, verse here, as we've been stating all along, and he applies this to people groups. 
So this is what God is historically doing, dispensing mercy on the uh, Gentile, or Jews first of all. They rejected their Messiah. Then he switches to the Gentiles. And we know the Gentiles will eventually become broken off from the olive branch and then God, the olive tree, and then God will bestow his favor once again upon the nation of Israel. He'll bestow most mercy on Israel. So we need to see the historical flow of this section and see that God is speaking of national election. So again, even us whom he called, plural, not the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. By the way, this is mercy on both groups of people. So God historically will bestow mercy on both Jew and Gentile. God has bestowed mercy on Israel in the past, the Jews in the past. God will once again bestow Israel mercy on Israel in the future. God is currently bestowing mercy upon us Gentiles. We have the privilege right now. We're in the place of uh, blessing. During the present dispensation, when grace is going out to the Gentiles, they Jews will be set aside nationally as by and by the same grace that is now being showed to the nations will be manifested again to them. And they Jews shall once more be called the children of the living God. Let's turn our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. <clears throat> And I think the language of this section is taken from Jeremiah. We have some of the same terms used here uh, taken out of the book of Jeremiah, especially chapter 30 and 31. Now, Jeremiah chapter 30 through 33 deals with the future of the nation of Israel. And I'll just read uh, sections from this passage here. Uh, Jeremiah chapter uh, 30, verse 22 he speaks of, you shall be my people and I will be your God. And uh, therefore, he speaks of God's acceptance of Israel once again in the future. The idea of being my people is having a relationship with them. You're going to have this close relationship because you'll be restored spiritually to me in the future. You'll be my people, I will be your God. Notice in verse chapter 31, verse 2. The same type of language. At the same time, saith the Lord, I will be the God of all the fam families of Israel, and they shall be my people. They shall be my people. Now, verse 3, we uh, began this uh, message speaking of God's love, God's everlasting love. Let's apply it to Israel. The Lord has appeared of old, saying to me, Yet I have, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love, eternal love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you. You shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. God's love of Israel is the basis for their future restoration. And we know that's what he's speaking of in this context because we jump down to verse 8. We speak, speak of a national regathering of Israel back to their homeland. So flowing out of that love for Israel, he says, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth, all the nations. So we have a national regathering of Israel. Verse 9, halfway through the verse, he says, I'm a father to Israel. I'm a father to Israel. In verse 10, in the middle of that verse, he says, he who scatters Israel will gather them, gather him. And then in verse 11, he says, The Lord hath redeemed Jacob. 
The Lord hath redeemed Jacob. And then at the end of verse 12, he says, They shall see sorrow no more at all. And then let's take a look at verse 14. I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance. And then that last line, My people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. Because of God's everlasting love of Israel, they have a future. They will be restored. They will once again become, have a restored relationship to the God that they chose historically to reject, especially their son, this God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, verse 29 Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So God still has a future for his chosen people, Israel. And therefore, that certainly gives us hope as Gentiles. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this section. Certainly, it's showing your sovereignty over the various nations, and we thank you, Lord, in the plan of God that you gave us Gentiles the opportunity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we thank you for many of us who have believed in the gospel that this gives us confidence and peace and hope. We do pray for the Jews who have not believed in Yeshua as their Messiah. We pray, Lord, that they might place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.